RehabCast, the official podcast of ACRM and the Archives of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation, is sponsored in part by Shepherd Center. My name is Zach Bradley. I'm a current employee and former patient of Shepherd Center, which specializes in medical treatment, research, and rehabilitation for people with spinal cord injury, brain injury, stroke, multiple sclerosis, spine and chronic pain, and other neuromuscular conditions. Our specialized clinicians serve as complex care partners. They collaborate with medical professionals who refer their patients to Shepherd Center to help them achieve optimal outcomes, returning them to their homes, communities, schools, and workplaces. Learn more at shepherd.org. Thanks for clicking on and tuning in to the 41st episode of RehabCast. As you may recall, this is the official podcast of the Archives of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. I'm your host, Dr. Ford Vox of the Shepherd Center in Atlanta. Now, each year, the ACRM National Conference hosts a rehab technology competition that we call Launchpad. The competition's goal is to highlight innovative new products. They can be pre-market or already on the market but all very early stage. And we hope that the competition is going to give participants a bit of a boost. In this episode, we're featuring the winner of the 2021 competition, Dr. Pooja Vishwanathan of Braze Mobility. She and her technology edged out stiff competition from four other teams at the annual conference in the culmination of a six-month process. Then we'll visit with Dr. Rosalie Wang of the Occupational Therapy Department at the University of Toronto on the unique aspects of evidence generation when it comes to disability technology and how we can do it faster and better. And as it turns out, Dr. Vishwanathan also participated in this research too. And joining us now on the rehab cast, we have Dr. Vishna Vishwanathan. She is the CEO of Braze Mobility in Ontario, Canada. And she and her company are the 2021 winners of the ACRM Launchpad Competition. This is our annual competition at the annual conference where we ask uh, innovators in rehabilitation technology to come give short presentations uh, to our panel of judges. Uh, and which they're asked to judge these things for both commercial viability and certainly usefulness to the patient populations uh, that we treat. Uh, and we consider it you know, quite an honor uh, at this point in time to be the winner uh, of that competition. We do ask the winners to come on to the podcast uh, with us, and uh, very grateful that uh, uh, Pooja can do that with us today. And she's going to tell us about her work uh, with Braze Mobility and uh, her, her background that led her uh, into this field. And uh, thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me here. It's uh, really exciting to be here. Well, uh, now let's let's start out with uh, kind of the, the the space that you're in, and uh, to set this up, it's it's wheelchairs, which can certainly be improved. Important access uh, devices, and uh, but wheelchairs, uh, electric wheelchairs in particular, uh, have a problem that you've uh, sought to solve. Uh, a lot of users are familiar with this and have seen the after effects uh, in their homes and workplaces and around the community and so forth. Uh, and perhaps it keeps uh, drywallers. Uh, in business, but and uh, uh, while the drywallers might not uh, want to hear about it, uh, you've come up with a, a solution to prevent some of these uh, dents and dings and walls and lost molding and all sorts of other things. Uh, tell us about it. 
That's right. Yeah, we're solving the the problem of safety concerns that are quite prevalent, especially with power wheelchair use, and can sometimes also be the case with manual wheelchair users who might have vision loss. Uh, so, just to give you a little bit of background, when I actually first um, sort of stumbled upon this problem, it was actually in the long term care setting, and in the long term care setting. Uh, we often find that residents are are sometimes not even allowed to use power mobility devices because of safety concerns, because obviously staff there is really concerned about not only safety of the wheelchair user, but others in the in the residents as well. Uh, and so I saw this, you know, back in you know, 2006, when I just graduated and I went into a long-term care facility for the first time, saw all these residents slumped over in manual wheelchairs and weren't being allowed to um, access powered mobility, which then really, you know, stripped them of their, their dignity, their their dignity, their independence, their mobility. Uh, so I really saw that as a violation of fundamental human rights. You know, mm-hmm. we, we all um, deserve a chance to uh, be independent and mobile and uh, decided that there was something that needed to be done about it. And so as a as a technologist myself, uh, I figured, uh, there, it, you know, that it, it was my my turn to do something about it and really explore what we could do. Because at the time, the sensor technology was actually quite prevalent in the automotive industry. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, the thought was, well, if cars can have sensors, why not wheelchairs? And that's really what met, set me on on my journey. And then in 2016, I ended up founding the company, which we've now created the world's first blind spot sensors that can be essentially added to any wheelchair power or manual and turns it into a smart wheelchair. And there are so many different types of electric wheelchairs out there. It's so many different uh, uh, price points and, and so forth. And it's kind of remarkable to, to think about uh, that so many can be potentially upgraded in this fashion. And uh, you're certainly thinking ahead about the types of disabilities that people do have that uh, that might also uh, need these electric mobility devices. And, you know, it's not just reliant on, you know, your vision or, or sound of hearing a beep and so forth. It could be tactile uh, as well. Boy, if we can get rid of uh, just the the uh, the pointless, uh, kind of almost pointless uh, backup beeping that has no reference to where anyone is, that's incredibly annoying for both the user and folks around, that would be great. Your wheelchairs beep, but they beep kind of more for a purpose in reaction to precisely where the chair is in the environment. That's exactly right. And and just to clarify, it's, it's not a wheelchair. It's a, it's just an add-on to a wheelchair. So that's technically right. you're, you're this, outfitted this system, wheelchair, properly outfitted that's right. wheelchairs. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, the sensor technology that, that you're using, does it have to be more sensitive than what's on automotive g- given that uh, the, the tight spaces that, that they're in? And, you know, obviously that uh, we're talking about uh, relatively slight movements around uh, corners or within some tiny kitchen or what have you. That's right. Yeah, we did have to, um, you know, the way that our our sensors are programmed and are positioned, uh, we do um, we did have to account for the fact that you know, wheelchair users tend to need to navigate in much tighter spaces than mm-hmm. than the cars. Uh, so we use similar type of sensor technology, uh, but we have you know calibrated and, and programmed it um, and come up with our own uh, proprietary algorithms to make them. Uh, more sensitive and robust to the kinds of environments that wheelchair users typically have to navigate in. Now, you mentioned uh, the proprietary aspect of this. Are there, are there patents and that type of thing? I was kind of curious, like, what, what's the marketplace like out there? Like, how many different manufacturers, including sensors of one kind or another uh, at this point in time versus what, what you're offering? Yeah, our system is patent pending, and hopefully we should see some patents coming soon. Um, and, you know, in terms of of really what's out there, you know, there's there's really no other system like ours. And the reason for that is 
Um, we designed this right from the get-go with wheelchair users, um, families, caregivers, therapists, and everyone in mind. So we uh, did a ton of interviewing of key stakeholders. We did a pretty long beta client program, which is mm. essentially where we recruited wheelchair users in the community to essentially stress test our systems, give the, you know give us feedback on how they were using it day to day. And so as a result, we've come up with a system that is not only widely accessible, and that's thanks to the multimodal uh, features that you kind of alluded to there. So we offer audio, visual, and um, a vibration or tactile feedback. And so it's it's widely accessible. Um, but, you know, also we've taken into account some of the day-to-day things that our wheelchair users need to do. So things like getting in and out of elevators or going through you know, tight doorways or just spaces that are not accessible. And so it's it's really neat, but you can actually use our, um, our blind spot sensors to center and kind of align yourself um, when you're going through doorways and elevators so that you don't hit the, the door frame on the way. So um, really, you know, we, we've really taken, we, we haven't just slapped on sort of the automotive, you know, sensors onto wheelchairs. We've really had to look at it as a whole new problem and to really understand from the user's perspective how this technology would need to work in order to be truly usable and adoptable. Uh, and in that, that's kind of what we're seeing is, uh, you know, we've seen great adoption of this technology just because of how we've designed it and the amount of feedback that we incorporated throughout the design process. And to describe for folks, of course, you can go onto the Brazen Mobility website and see the YouTube videos. Uh, but uh, uh, the sent, the uh, display, uh, you know, sits uh, uh, can be attached to uh, the chair uh, armrest, and the sensors are on on the back end. And it's a series of uh, of lights that show left or right, and uh, whether it's kind of relatively close or a little bit distant in proximity to what you're getting uh, to versus the beeping as well. And then there's uh, a vibratory feedback strip that can be put in the in the chair that lets you feel a buzzing uh, of, of left or right or uh, in the center back, whatever you're potentially backing up into, right? That's right. So if you're going through a doorway, for example, if you're too close to the right side, the right side of the chair will vibrate and too close to the left, the left side of the chair will vibrate. Um, and in addition as well, the sensors, uh, you know, a lot of the pictures there on the website probably show the sensors on the back, but the sensors can in fact be mounted all around the wheelchair. Oh, so okay. we do in fact have um, wheelchair users, for example, who are legally blind or have just very low central vision and have trouble judging, uh, you know, depth perception in front of the chair. Mm-hmm. And so we can in okay. fact also install sensors in the front, the sides, really anywhere around. And we have very adaptable mounting hardware as well. So again, something that we had to do because of course there's no standardization uh, when you look at wheelchairs, you know, every every wheelchair, it can be quite different and and Mm -hmm. are often quite customized for the client themselves. And so we've sort of also incorporated that into our own design where our system is also highly customizable. And so almost every feature of the, of the system, including the colors of the light. So, you know, by default, the color is red. If you're too close, which is the danger zone and yellow, if you're a little further away in the warning zone. Uh, however, those colors can be re- reprogrammed for someone with color blindness. Uh, the brightness of the lights can be adjusted, you know, even in the way in which the feedback can be delivered to the user, for example, say they only want beeps for obstacles in the rear, but vibrations for obstacles in the front, all of that can be done as well. So um, while, you know, the system seems quite simple and and in fact has been designed to be very simple and intuitive, it's actually quite powerful and sophisticated in the level of customization it can offer every client. Uh, And folks can get this right now. It's on the open marketplace. 
Absolutely. Yeah. They can reach out to us online. Uh, they can provide details to us on the client intake form, which they can access right from the homepage. If they just request a demo or a, a trial, um, they can provide us information about their chair, about, you know, what, what kind of sensor coverage they need. And and yeah, we can give them all the information about the recommended package and the costs and so on. And we do work with uh, a bunch of wheelchair providers across Mm. the US and Canada in order to be able to then install and support our system ongoing as well. Fascinating. What's the price point we're looking at? So it ranges from uh, about $1,800. And then the, the, the most popular configuration, I'd say, uh, is around $3,000 or slightly under. Uh, and that package comes with a rear-facing Sentinel, which gives you about 180 degrees of horizontal coverage and 45 to 50 degrees of vertical coverage. And mm-hmm. as, as well, also a, a two echo heads, which would be mounted to the front of the chair that's then providing that peripheral uh, co- um, vision coverage as well. So that uh, popular system is somewhere between $2,500 to $3,000. And so quite affordable. We do see uh, a a lot of clients paying for it out of pocket. But the nice thing about that price point is that we all are also finding a lot of organizations in the U.S. that are funding the device. Uh, so that's a lot of state Medicaid programs, Office of Vocational Rehab, for example. You've got Workers' Comp and Veterans Affairs, um, mm-hmm. some private insurance funding it as well. So we've had tremendous success. In fact, I'd say we'd have over 80% uh, success in reimbursement for the device. Oh, wow. That's fantastic to hear. Um uh, so this is already a huge uh, innovation and compared to just, you know, blindly backing up, which can cause uh, damage, not just physical locations, but potentially injure bystanders and, and, and so forth. But, but it uh, strikes me that uh, even further adaptations could be made from the automotive sphere, such as like a backup camera uh, or maybe even what about a little bit of resistance like the lane keep assist that's in cars now, you know, it can give you your joystick starts to give you a little bit of resistance as you're. Uh, you know, heading into a wall or something. Um, uh, what about those types of, of technologies? Are you starting to think in, in those directions as well? Yeah, I mean, there's, we're really just skimming the surface right now. There's there's so much more, um, you know, that I think we can expect in the near future. I've personally been invested in quite a bit of research around semi-autonomous and autonomous uh, wheelchairs mm. as well, which is a bulk of actually my PhD and postdoctoral, postdoctoral work. In fact, we had to pivot to the solution that we have today, which is really just an alert system because of a lot of the, the usability and safety concerns that we actually saw with semi-autonomous technology, very similar to kind of a lot of the safety concerns we're also seeing seeing with similar technology in the automotive industry, you know, things like, you know, auto braking and things like that. What happens if a sensor suddenly, you know, thinks that there's an obstacle in the way and and stops your wheelchair in the middle of the street, you know, there's a real huge concern there around safety and uh, and liability and so on. So with those considerations in mind, you know, we are proceeding, uh, you know, doing a lot of research and development in that area, but I think it remains to be seen how we're actually going to bring that technology to market, how we're going to educate our consumers, um, and really what sort of, um, you know, what sort of clientele that that technology would be uh, appropriate for, right? Because if you look at clientele who maybe have cognitive deficits or severe motor control mm-hmm. issues, they might be the users that can benefit the most from those sorts of interventions that you were talking about, like maybe auto, you know, speed corrections or, or lane changes. However, they might also be the clientele that would find it very difficult to recognize if a malfunction occurred uh, or might not be able to uh, override a malfunction at all or in time. And mm-hmm. so those are, you know, 
very, very important safety considerations as we move forward. But I, I certainly hope, um, and our, our, our aim is that, you know, Braze will be at the forefront of leading those sorts of discussions and uh, hopefully in helping establish some standards around this technology. Uh, you know, we've, we've seen, um, you know, really wanting to learn from the automotive industry. We've, we've seen uh, a very relaxed approach to a lot of safety standards around this technology and certainly don't want to make that mistake in our industry. Yeah. One does see a whole new world in the future, potentially for, you know, dementia care facilities and uh, nursing homes uh, in, in general, potentially with these types of technologies, kind of a combination of a little bit of AI with the wheelchair and so forth. You could circumscribe, uh, say, you know, where in a facility folks could safely go and make sure that the wheelchairs do automatically stop with certain obstacles or people or so forth and, and allow uh, the residents of said facility to have a lot more uh, freedom in, in, in that regard. Certainly one, one does see a lot of potential with this issue that you kind of started out with, uh, looking at uh, kind of residential care facilities, dementia care facilities, uh, nursing homes, and so forth, where the combination of these sensor technologies and maybe the, the wheelchair being a little bit smart and so forth uh, is going to provide residents of such facilities a lot more independence uh, to circulate around the grounds and so forth, and you know, certainly within the facility with it being kind of relatively circumscribed uh, where the chair can go and making sure that it is going to stop before it bumps into somebody and those types of things. Yeah. And in fact, it's it's been personally really rewarding for me to see um, how this sort of technology has already made a huge difference in long-term care. For example, we actually have now long-term care facilities uh, in both the U.S. and Canada uh, mm. where residents who otherwise might have either been denied power wheelchair use altogether or were considered sort of borderline, uh, you know, where the staff was actually considering taking the power mobility device away from the user. And in those situations, the staff has actually found that the sensor technology allowed the, the residents to, to stay safe and so have allowed those residents to actually continue to be mobile independent with the use of power mobility. And so I really come full circle in that this is a problem that I, I started off to solve. And today we are seeing long-term care facilities that are actually mandating the sensors for those sorts of residents where there might be some safety concerns, but they're able to demonstrate that with the sensors, they are in fact able to um, you know, navigate independently. And, and, and isn't that just so fantastic that now we have residents who whose quality of life has have been has been so hugely impacted, uh, you know, in such a positive way, because mobility really does have huge links with with overall quality of life. And so uh, we really need to do the best we can in order to keep people mobile independent as long as we possibly can. Well, what a rewarding line of work. And uh, glad that your company is out there in this space. Obviously, uh, uh, the ACM conference was a was a big fan of it in 2021. So thank you for choosing to present uh, there. And uh, thanks for sharing it uh, with our audience today. Thanks so much. It's been great to, to chat here and um, really encourage definitely the listeners to go check us out at www.phrasemobility.com. Very good. Thank you. Joining us now on the Rehab Cast, we have Dr. Rosalie Wang. Dr. Wang is an assistant professor in the Department of Occupational Science and Occupational Therapy at the University of Toronto. She is also an affiliate scientist at Toronto Rehab Institute and a member of their AI and Robotics and Rehab team. Dr. Wang, thanks for joining us. Oh, you're very welcome. Pleasure to be here. Well, you have one of these kind of special papers in the journal. What Literally, it's called special. It's a special <laughs> communication. Um, and uh, you and your uh, uh, team have uh, written, The Time is Now, 
a faster approach to generate research evidence for technology-based interventions in the field of disability and rehabilitation. So these special communications are, are often kind of our big idea papers, uh, and this definitely uh, seems to fit the bill in that regard. Um, well, uh, tell us about uh, uh, kind of where this this came from, how how you and this team kind of got together around this. Obviously, I see all of you folks are working in rehabilitation technology and adaptive uh, techniques and so forth and uh, rehab engineering and, and that type of thing. And everyone seems to be uh, of a mind that there there was a problem, and this is your uh, uh, purported uh, potential solution. So we'll kind of talk about the elements of it and um, maybe implementation and so forth. But let's begin at the beginning. Where where does this come from? Sure. So um, a group of us. Um, so we are um, more or less international, but we are. Um, primarily Canadian. And uh, we, as you say, we've been working in rehabilitation. So some of us have clinical backgrounds, occupational therapy, physical therapy, nursing, and also engineers and technology developers. And some of the um, developers have also gone on to um, start their own um, startup companies to sort of um, commercialize the products that they've been investigating uh, primarily in um, academic research. And collectively, we've found that the processes or the paradigm currently that's in place wasn't really working for us for multiple reasons. And uh, we actually, myself um, and Pooja uh, Vishwanathan had actually organized uh, with a group of others a workshop on smart wheelchairs um, for assessment mm -hmm. and training. And during during that workshop, we surfaced so many concerns and tensions around technology development, um, looking at, you know, what is considered clinical evidence? How do we go about investigating these types of technologies so that they do have the greatest opportunity for implementation into clinical practice? And then we also had uh, surfaced a lot of other tensions related to the commercialization aspect. And so once you have, you know, even proof of concept, where do you take it from there? And we know mm -hmm. that there's a lot of uh, work going on now looking at innovation hubs and also incubators and accelerators and all of these areas, but we still seem to see that there's a lot of what they call valleys of death. And so we have yeah. a lot of academic research, really, really fantastic ideas that would potentially really help people, but they either get shelved for whatever reason after a trainee has finished their project, or it doesn't find a suitable market to be able to advance, or there really isn't a lot of funding to be able to take it to the next level. And and so some of these things were discussed in our workshop, but we also recognized that there was a significant issue in terms of the way that we generate clinical evidence for our interventions. And so the existing paradigm looking at, um, you know, the clinical trials methodology that we often sort of adopt in, you know, medical devices, but also rehabilitation technology doesn't really fit with our populations. Um, no. We have very small heterogeneous populations where it doesn't make sense to do some of the sort of phase two and phase three trials where we still have concerns around implementation. So how feasible is it? Would it work in somebody's environment or the context and things like that? So lots of kind of issues around that. But also we have concerns around how we actually execute some of our clinical trials. And we know that the hierarchy of evidence is really sort of promoting, you know, at the pinnacle of that is randomized control trials. But as we lay out in the article, it's really fraught with 
a lot of complications, and it doesn't mm -hmm. necessarily produce the kind of information that is really meaningful and timely for us um, in terms of translating the outputs. Definitely. And this is such a, a wide-ranging uh, proposal on, on many fronts and does a great job of, uh, uh, I think, justifying uh, this approach from, from many different angles. And, and one of the ones that, that strikes me as kind of more interesting is this kind of uh, uh, rights and ethics uh, angle as well. I mean, we end up talking about this on this podcast a lot, it seems like, in the rehabilitation research. It seems like rehab, certainly rehabilitation uh, technology and engineering and so forth, almost seems uh, kind of tyrannized by other, other other areas of medicine to the extent that, you know, you talk about biotechnology and so forth. I mean, uh, something that is an appropriate method of, of going about developing a, a heart valve technology that's going to be implanted in thousands of patients and so forth, or a prosthetic hip or, or what have you, as if that really bears a strong relationship to individuals with, with uh, specific disabilities uh, uh, needing particular patches uh, to improve their quality of life. It's really an entirely different problem. One, one thought that occurred to me as I was reading this is, boy, uh, this seems like a, a broadside at the Cochrane Reviews. <laughs> uh, I remember um, uh, looking at, at so many uh, uh, individual rehab uh, interventions over the, over the course of training um, uh, for what's in the literature and often coming across the relevant Cochrane Review only to be told there is no sufficient evidence uh, for this particular practice that, that I see you know, benefiting uh, individual patients. Uh, and the trouble with uh, you know, Cochrane Reviews and mass systematic reviews and so forth is that as, as it seems like you guys are acknowledging here, that, that evidence may, may never exist because it may be technically impossible to do in this patient population. Mm -hmm. And also for the types of interventions, we know that, you know, there's a lot of movement towards um, exploring and how we evaluate and develop complex interventions. And there's supposed to be a new report coming up anytime now from the British groups looking at complex interventions. But it really, really is that there's so much complexity within the systems that we implement our interventions in, but also with our client populations. And so it's challenging to be able to sort of get to the level of, you know, where we're expected to be in terms of evidence and the hierarchy of evidence. So being able to conduct the large studies that are very well controlled to, you know, get the information that, you know, is considered the highest level of evidence. And so not really saying that, you know, it's, it's a cop-out, but I think we need mm -hmm. to sort of shift how we think about what evidence really needs to be for us to be able to implement our technologies and for them to be able to get to the hands of the people who need them. And so thinking about the way that we generate evidence, and one of the things that kind of struck me the most with, you know, the idea of, you know, the uh, Cochrane reviews and things like that, it's, I think, as a community, it almost seems like we need to have that sense of liberation that we don't necessarily have to go this path if it's not working for us. Yeah. Uh, an another thought that, that occurred to me is, in many ways, it almost seems like the RCT is not ADA compliant. Uh, that, that seems like an interesting formulation to me. I, I think there's a lot of discussion that, that can go with that. Absolutely. Yeah, that, that it really doesn't uh, uh, appreciate individual disability. And in fact, in, fact, uh, in, in some ways, could, could be um, something that, that necessarily holds people back from full participation and 
in society. Mm. Um, you start out talking about in your introduction the fact that the Medical Research Council in the in the UK does have some um, version of, of kind of a bit of what you guys are talking about in, in uh, looking at complex interventions. My understanding of the Medical Research Council is that they are the folks who evaluate evidence uh, for interventions that uh, will or won't be covered by the NHS. So that that is a system uh, where um, certainly, you know, uh, public dollars are, are going to be uh, spent on it. Uh, uh, you know, that that country is as well invested in investigating everything that it that it can, but are routinely. I think one thing that's different in the UK versus uh, the US, although the US is increasingly becoming this way, is everyone's health care is a matter of public interest followed to the extent almost it seems that, that uh, politics is. As in, when I, when I look at the UK press, it seems very common that there are stories about what the NHS will or won't do in an individual case, often focusing on extreme medical scenarios or versions of disability and so forth. And, and the society in general seems to have a vested interest in how the NHS is going to help this particular person or family or not, which, which, is, uh, which is interesting. And so uh, folks like the Medical Research Council, you know, really have to engage in a way that seems fair um, for, you know, individuals, uh, citizens on, on the NHS. Well, what did you guys learn from, from that, that system and what's, what's kind of different versus what you guys are proposing? Yeah, so um, as as um, you mentioned, we do cite the work of the Medical Research Council on complex interventions. And, and again, they've also, it appears to me, since their first publication, have gone through quite a shift as well in terms of focusing on, again, randomized control trials um, and the hierarchy of evidence to uh, shift to more sort of openness towards different types of study designs to evaluate interventions at the stage that they're at and their level of maturity and the kind of information that you want at the end. And so um, mm-hmm. our, our work is in line with that kind of thinking. I'm not privy to the latest report just yet, but I think there's a lot of discussion now that's looking mm-hmm. at, you know, how do we actually um, create our interventions and develop our interventions in the most informed way? And also, how do we be able to more systematically, but also in a very transparent way, evaluate them at each stage so that we get patient, client, consumer input all along the way, but also the people who are delivering the interventions, how do we incorporate their perspectives and what they think will be beneficial throughout the process? And so that's why we're looking at it from the perspective of, you know, we're not going to want the definitive intervention that we've created um, and evaluated in a large major study. We want to be able to have iterations throughout so that we're constantly Mm -hmm. modifying and evaluating our approach and our intervention, you know, our theories behind the interventions and things like that so that we are working within the environments that they will be delivered. And so hopefully that is the idea that will sort of support the greatest opportunities for success where it's really kind of embedded in the scenarios where they're going to be implemented, but also have a lot of feedback from the individuals who would be benefiting most, but also delivering the interventions. Very good. Well, let's talk a a little bit about uh, the, the process that you guys are uh, proposing here and kind of the, the meat of the matters I gather is this uh, three-phase uh, process, right? 
Uh, could you kind of give us an overview of that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, we're looking at three phases, but again, we also sort of look at um, the idea that it's not always going to be in that sort of very nice. rigid path. There's a lot of different elements where you might be moving back and forth between different phases. And so the first mm -hmm. phase is really looking at development. And one of the things that we kind of explore in that is current sort of discussions around design thinking and how we sort of generate the ideas for our interventions and really focusing on things like um, understanding the needs, the perspectives of lots of the stakeholders that are involved, and also um, having a lot of scientific evidence to back it up, back up some of our um, sort of, you know, theories of how the intervention might work, but also looking at, you know, research evidence, but also some theoretical evidence as well. And so that would be the development phase and different steps of that or different elements of that might be um, pilot tested in different ways. Mm -hmm. And so the next stage really is looking at feasibility and usability testing. And ideally, again, in the real world, so that we get information that is going to inform us about how things might work in real life, working with individuals who would be benefiting from the intervention and looking at, you know, different outcomes that are feasibility related, but also how the person is able to use um, the technology-based intervention and, you know, various other sort of shorter-term outcomes, but looking at how they interact with it. And then the other the sort of third phase is looking at really deploying in real life situations and seeing how activity participation outcomes might be impacted, but also potentially looking at sort of the longer range outcomes as well. And uh, we do have, you know, tabled as some of our future work is looking at something like a reporting checklist that will outline um, for each phase of the process, what are some of the key things that researchers, developers uh, might need to keep in mind in terms of the outcomes, but also what are they looking at as sort of the minimum criteria within uh, those different phases. Now, where in this phase is FDA approval? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's an excellent question. So um, actually, uh, we, we had some really great reviewers and uh, they were mm. very positive in our reviews. So we were very appreciative of that. They did talk about FDA approval and where that might fit. We're also sort of trying to explore that at the moment because as a sort of follow-up to this paper, we're also working, uh, Pooja Vishwanathan and some of the other co-authors are also looking at a follow-up article that is something, uh, I guess I can sort of say, called mm -hmm. Lean Faster, um, looking at sort of lean methodology and how that might sort of interface with the faster approach that we've described. I feel like I should know what lean methodology is, but I can't recall. Would you tell me? Oh, it's, um, it's a methodology that, and I'm clearly not an expert on this, but from my understanding of it, it's a process that actually started in the automotive industry, really looking at, mm. you know, checking out what your customers want to be able to oh, sort okay. of develop the best sort of product or service for them. And it also does look at a matching products to consumer needs and what is the sort of market value of your product or service. Mm -hmm. And when we kind of translate that to interventions in disability and rehabilitation, we're also sort of looking at that match. And so kind of looking at it from a slightly different angle 
But again, part of making sure that things match is this iterative process of, you know, you've got something, you want to check it out with your customers to make sure that, you know, you're on the right track, Mm -hmm. but you're also producing something that is going to be in demand and therefore potentially acceptable, usable, integratable, that kind of thing. So, um, So we're exploring sort of different elements of that and looking at potentially where, at which point somebody might go for regulatory approval mm-hmm. because we also do know that the landscape out there is really quite broad there's no clear sort of delineation or time point where a product might be considered commercializable so sure. there's a lot of flux in terms of you know does this potential product or service capture the attention of investors at a really early stage of its development or at a much later stage and so we're sort of trying to work out you know, where we might be able to incorporate some of the regulatory aspects into our process as well. And, and I'm sure this is a process uh, for rehabilitation technology for which you would love for the FDA uh, to, to be aware and, and perhaps uh, recognize is, is more appropriate for these types of technologies rather than some of the uh, uh, norms uh, that they would be deploying for other other types of biotechnology. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I just wanted to add something to that as well. Like our process and sort of our development really does look at safety concerns um, as one of the sort of outcomes. I should have mentioned that earlier, but one of the outcomes that we're all really keen to make sure is incorporated is some not not just you know whether or not it conforms to you know standards for whatever type of technology or intervention it might. Be. but also looking at safety in implementation, in practice, in use. And so at this point in time, I think in terms of regulatory for disability and rehabilitation technologies, there doesn't seem to be a lot of guidance around that area as well. And so as we sort of work through, you know, developing some of the criteria, reporting checklists and other sort of outputs and resources, it might very well help to sort of inform what some of the minimum criteria might be for safety, but also for clinical evidence. And so it potentially could be a big area that will be important in terms of informing the field overall. Well, you know, I certainly think this this special communication is going to be well received in the in the community of rehabilitation researchers and those in rehab uh, technology. Uh, generally, uh, again, it's it's uh, a great paper and discussed from so many different angles. Again, the thing, uh, uh, some of the points in here that are particularly attractive to me and that I really hadn't considered before was uh, kind of perhaps this, uh, you know, ethics uh, side angle, uh, you know, disability rights angle and, and, and so forth. And um, you know, uh, obviously, this is, uh, you know, rehab is, is different in so many facets, but, but one of which is that, uh, you know, rehab itself lacks, um, you know, a, a strong, you know, pharmaceutical industry, biotechnology industry. I mean, the, uh, the patient populations uh, solutions are often sometimes fairly unique to different subpopulations and, and so forth. And, uh, you know, so much of the medical space, you know, both, you know, commercialization and, you know, FDA attention and everything else is, is applied to areas of medicine that are more about, you know, uh, epidemiology, kind of the big, the big picture populations, you know, thousands of uh, or millions of, of people and, and so forth. And when you think about it that way, uh, a sense of unfairness uh, starts to uh, creep in, um, you know, on, on behalf of our patients and, and the work that we do, how really 
the the system uh, as it exists, um, the medical science uh, to a certain extent, and medical technology uh, almost systematically uh, ignores uh, an entire uh, class of uh, of persons and their and their problems, and and a systematic issue exists uh, holding back um, their advancement and inclusion into full society. I would agree with that sentiment very much. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, certainly, certainly fits in with you know themes of uh, big picture wise what we've been seeing in society a lot over over recent years. And um, so, great work, and uh, I appreciate your time with us here today. Thank you so much for inviting me. Now that's all we've got for this forty first episode of the Rehab Cast. Please click like on your podcast app and take a moment to send this show to a friend or colleague. See you next time.